working our way through Paul's epistle to the church at Colossae. And uh, we want to, again, we are continuing actually from last week. We weren't able to actually complete the entirety of the thought, of course, in this portion of the text. So we're going to begin our reading this morning in Colossians 3 and beginning in verse 5. And we'll read through verse 14. Paul says, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil, concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, vows of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, longsuffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. You can be seated. As was Paul's style, as we've seen multiple times throughout the study of Paul's epistles, as was his style in common practice, within this third chapter of the epistle to the church at Colossae, Paul exhorts the reader to practically live out the truth of the doctrine or the teaching which he had explained in the previous portions of the epistle. Everything that Paul outlines in this portion of the text and in the previous he had already explained within the previous portions of this epistle or of this letter. So everything that Paul is explaining is founded upon the truth of his opening statement in this third chapter. Now, throughout the previous chapters, Paul has established doctrinal teaching and truths, and now he's calling out the practical, uh, appropriating those provisions God has made for us in Christ. And so he says in chapter 3 and verse 1, which we did not read this morning, but this is foundational to everything Paul is explaining now, He says, if ye then be risen with Christ. And Paul summarized this truth in his epistle to the churches of Galatia, Galatians 5, 24 and 25, we read last week. And they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Even in these two verses, Paul does exactly what he's done throughout the letter of Colossians and as well Ephesians. He's laying again that... Romans, he's laying again that, that foundational truth, the doctrinal truths upon which we are established and founded, and then calls the church or individual believers to then appropriate the provision of the position God has given us in Jesus Christ. So again, Paul in no way is calling us to act a certain way, or, to, or the Colossian believers, to act a certain way, or to try to become something that they are not. He's simply saying, as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. As you have received Christ, as you have received grace, as you have received mercy, so live accordingly. As you have been risen with Christ, having already been crucified, dead first, and we'll look at that again in a moment, now risen with him, so live in the resurrected power of Jesus Christ. Live in the power of the resurrected Jesus. That's what Paul's saying. And so he says in chapter 5, 24 and 25 of Galatians, notice, they that are Christ have crucified the flesh. He doesn't say those that are Christ should crucify the flesh 
or this is how they should act, or this is how they should present themselves. No, he's making an absolute statement that those who are Christ, if you belong to Jesus, then you are crucified with him. You cannot belong to him without identifying in his crucifixion. And then he says, but if you've been crucified with the affections and lusts, then he says, if we live in the Spirit, now this is the resurrection power, because we're crucified, we are dead. And now he says, but if we live in the Spirit, which is the Spirit of Christ within us, then that's the resurrection power of Christ living in us, his resurrected life. Then he makes this statement, if we live in the Spirit, or or Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, if ye then be risen with Christ, he says in chapter 525 of Galatians, if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. There's the foundational truth. We are alive in Christ. Here's the practical living this out or the appropriating of the provision. Walk accordingly. Walk as you have received such grace. Walk as you have received the Lord. Having been crucified with Christ, risen with him, Paul begins by exhorting the Colossian believers concerning his exhortations here to put off the works of the old man and to put on all that pertained to the new man. Now, we've looked at this over the past few weeks, but again, briefly, I want to review this. Paul says in verses 8 and 9, to put off. He says, but now ye also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. So to put off, that means to put away, to remove all the filthy garments of the flesh. As I've given the example to you over the past few weeks, and you find this consistent again in Paul's epistles in Ephesians and Romans, where Paul speaks of putting off or putting on, even like putting on the armor, the whole armor of God. The same uh, Greek word is used in all of these epistles, which is talking about, uh, or it, 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 it implies that of, of putting on like someone would dress or clothe themselves. And so it's an intentional act, but it's actually putting on the clothes that are provided. And, I, and I've said to you over the past several weeks multiple times that it is very foolish for one to think that it would be a normal practice for one who has just gotten out of the shower or just cleansed themselves, bathed themselves, to then go put back on the filthy garments they just took off in order to cleanse themselves from whatever they had been doing prior to this, that does not make sense to do such a thing if, and this is the big caveat, if you will, if there are clean or new clothes available which can be put on. Now, if someone has nothing else from what they, than what they just put off to put back on, then it makes perfect sense to put that back on, even after attempting to cleanse oneself. But for those who are redeemed, we have been given the righteousness of Christ, and we are to appropriate that righteousness and live accordingly or live therein. And it is foolish for us to think, as believers in Christ, that it is a common or normal practice or an acceptable practice for one who's professing to have been cleansed through the provision of Christ and the atoning work of Christ to then just go back and there be no evidence and no demonstration, no manifestation of a new man that they claim to be in Christ and just go back to putting on the filthy garments. So when he says put off, he's saying cast off, put away, uh, uh, disregard all of that which pertain to the flesh. So after urging the Colossian believers to put off all the works of the old man, he then continues by instructing them to put on all that which pertains to the new man. And prior to providing such instruction, Paul first reminds the reader of the basis which enables believers to put on righteousness. 
So when he says, put on all this that pertains to the good man and the righteous works of God, when he says, he first says in verse 10, and have put on the new man. Now this is interesting because Paul does a reversal in how he presents these truths. When he first says to put off in the previous verses, if you look back, for instance, at verse 8, but now all, he also put off all these. Now what does he mention? He mentions all of these works of the flesh, all of these deeds of the flesh. Put off, he says, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not to one another. But then he says this, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. So he's saying the basis for which you do not uh, clothe yourself in such behaviors is that you've already been crucified with Christ. And he begins again in chapter 3, verse 1, the very foundation for everything he is stating is if ye then be risen with Christ. But if you are risen with Christ, it's only because you first have been crucified with Christ. And so that dead man, man is dead, meaning he is crucified with Christ. Now, again, that is positionally. For instance, the moment I die, the moment I die as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am sanctified completely, not in a glorified body necessarily, right? But yet sanctified completely. I am presented pure before God. I am righteous before him, not because I've attained that, but because Christ in whom I am hid is righteous. And so because of his righteousness, positionally, we are righteous. But practically speaking, my life is not always right. And you could look at me and definitely say, well, that surely doesn't look very much like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the fact of the matter is positionally, this is an absolute truth. Practically, it is a truth that is being worked out or lived out. Paul alludes to this as well in his book of Epistle to the Philippians. If you recall in Philippians chapter 2, the latter part of verse 12, when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, again, Paul does not say work, and the prepositions here are important. He doesn't say work for your own salvation. He doesn't say work toward your own salvation. He doesn't even say work on your own salvation. He doesn't say any of those things. He says work out. But then he explains what he means by that in the following verse, in verse 13, when he says, for it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So if it is God working in us, we are just simply being commanded to work out that which God has already worked in. Again, remember, religion's always saying work this stuff in. But salvation and redemption in Christ is always working out what's already been completed and accomplished within us. And so this is a work that is accomplished that's now being worked out. And so here in, in verses 8 and 9, Paul says to put off, but he says put off all the deeds seeing that ye have put off the old man. It's because the old man's been put off that you're even able to put these deeds off. These should not have commonplace in your life, practically speaking. So he says, put off, put away, remove all the filthy garments of the flesh. Then he goes to verses 10 and 11 again, put on, and have put on the new man. Now he begins with the fact of saying, you put off the old deeds because the old man's already dead. But now he says, and have put on the new man. So he doesn't begin with doing all of these things or putting on charity or putting all of these things on. He now says, put on, or you have put on the new man, which, notice what he says, is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And, and what, a, what a wonderful statement, because again, remember with me quickly, briefly, I want to remind you that the issue here with the Gnosticism that is creeping into the church, at the, at the first century church, and so part of Gnosticism, of course, was that they believed that you could 
uh, reach a relationship with God or, or, or through some mystical knowledge, gnosis, gnosis, right? The, the Greek there. So he's saying to know. And so it's Gnosticism that you somehow are going to reach a relationship with God or you can know God through some mystical means, which absolutely, absolutely eradicates the entirety for the need of God to send Christ in the flesh for redemption to know him. So this is anti-Christ, obviously, because it's not just saying we can know God through some mystical means. It's saying there's no need for there to be a, a Savior. There's no need for there to be uh, the Son of God manifested in the flesh because we know God through some mystical means, not by Him revealing Himself, being the very image of the invisible God, as Paul says in, in Colossians. And so He is that image. He is, again, that icon. He is the one in whom all the Godhead, the fullness of the Godhead bodily is present in Him. And so God manifested Himself through that means. And so when you look and see Paul saying in verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge. This isn't mystical knowledge. This isn't something abstract. No, it is the knowledge after the image. But who is that image? Christ is that image. He is the very image of the invisible God. So we are renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. And what does Paul clearly say throughout Romans, and, and uh, we find in Colossians, and as well the Hebrew writer writes this, and also John's gospel tells us that Christ created all things. So we are renewed in the image. The new man is renewed in the image. Now remember, the significance of this is that we are a marred image of God. As, as mankind, who was created in the image of God, now we are marred image of God because of Adam and Eve, original sin. Now we are marred images. And that gives significance, of course, to Ephesians, in which Paul, I'm sorry, in Romans, in which Paul writes and states that whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate, be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, to be changed in, in the likeness of his image. Until the time, the scripture speaks of the time of the reformation, that we are being reformed. And that is through the process that's taking place right now from the positional truth that we are risen with Christ. A new man has been created, and now that new man is being manifested as we are working out the creation of this new man that God has created within, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is saying here that the basis for uh, believers to put on such righteousness is that we have put on the new man, renewed in the Im knowledge and image of him that created him. And then he says in verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, uh, Scythian, bond nor freak, but Christ is all and in all. The grammatical structure of verse 10 I told you last week is significant regarding Paul's instruction. Have put on is in the aorist tense, in, in the, the Greek grammar, which speaks of a historical act, while the statement which is renewed is in the present tense, which implies a continuous act. Spence-Jones commented and made this statement. The notions are combined of a new birth taking place once for all and a new character in course of formation. There's that reformation. There's that renewal taking place from the position already having been born again. So when you look at the at the tense, this speaks of a completed historical act. In our new birth, we are already made to be a new creature in Christ. This is something that God has done through his provision of his son. In the power of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are justified, the scripture says. 
And so now, God has made us right with himself, set us into a right relationship, the very meaning of justification. We are set into a right relationship now with God. But we also understand that this is a continual process being manifested through us. Again, and and this is thing to examine yourselves to see that you be in the faith. If you claim to have come to faith in Jesus Christ in your 20s and you are now in your 60s, and there is absolutely no difference in the way you think and in how you speak and how you act and in what you desire, if there is no change between the time of your professed faith to this point in time, then that means that there is no new creation. There is no new creature, which means that there's no progressive manifestation of a new man within. And, and those people such as that who make such professions, the reason that they will go back to their old ways, and that doesn't mean necessarily some gross immorality, or it could be, but it doesn't mean that. The, it may just be a life filled with pride. It may be a religious life involved within religious circles, even the church itself, but everything they do is about them, for them, or for some ulterior motive, rather than submitting to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and recognizing that he is preeminent, as Paul is, is emphasizing throughout Colossians. So the point being that whether it's a, a, an outward manifestation of some gross immorality or whatever it may be, or some sin that's very obvious and very public, the fact of the matter is those who do not know Christ, even if they profess Christ, and they claim to have been cleansed, and they try to wash themselves up and clean themselves up to look better, all they have to go back to are the old garments. All they have to go back to is the old works and deeds of the flesh. That's all they know, and that's all they have. But again, for the believer, we've been set free from this and now have been liberated and made free not only from sin, but more importantly, we've been made free to righteousness. So now we can live out and live in righteousness, which we before could never do. Paul further explains all of this in Ephesians 4, 22 through 24. We won't take time to read that this morning. So the work is completed in the inner man, which results in a continuous outward change. Excuse me. It's upon the basis that we are risen with Christ, that we have put on this new man in which there is no division, no enmity, no social or religious hierarchy, that Paul then urges the reader to intentionally put on all that pertains to this new man, which is after Christ, and the new man being Christ. Verses 10 and 11, let's read them again. And have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Again, I want to remind you of Paul's exhortation in his epistle of Romans. In Romans 13, 12 through 14, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. That's dealing with putting off. Cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Again, the only means by which we will not put on works of the deeds of works and deeds of the flesh is to have put on Christ. Well, what does that mean? It means appropriate the provision of the righteousness of God and Jesus Christ within your life. You already arisen with him. Now that provision is made for you to live in the truth of righteousness. And the scripture says, as Paul says in Galatians chapter five, 
They that are Christ have crucified the flesh and the lust thereof. It's done. Now, it's, we are dead positionally. Now we must practically live in that fashion, resting and trusting in dependency of the life of Christ, the resurrected power of the life of Jesus Christ within us. He says, make not provision for the flesh. How? By putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are risen with Christ, verse 1 of chapter 3 of Colossians, and have put on the new man in which we are reconciled with both God and man, verse 10, we are commanded, verses 10 and 11, we are commanded to put on all that pertains to the new man, in other words, because we are now a new man in Christ. We are able to now intentionally live in the new life of this new man. Now, I don't want to belabor the point, but it is almost impossible to not refer again to Paul's letter to the church at Corinth when addressing these matters of the new man and reconciliation. Let's listen to what Paul says and notice the connection in these verses between that of the new man, the new creature, and reconciliation. In chapter 5, verses 17 through 21 of 2 Corinthians, Paul wrote, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, not he should be, not he ought to act like, not he should present himself. No, if any man be in Christ, what? He is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Again, a definitive statement. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God. Now notice what Paul goes on to say. Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. So we are reconciled to God, and reconciliation, if you remember what that term actually means theologically, the definition is to remove the hostility. And so when we're talking about, when it speaks of us being reconciled to God by Jesus Christ, God the Father made the atonement on our behalf Remember what uh, the scripture says, for he hath made him, the father hath made him the son to be sin for us, the sinner, the son who knew no sin, that we, the sinner, might be made the righteousness of God, the father in him, in the son. And so he's saying that, that God poured his wrath out, again, full judgment, no pardon upon his son, that we, the sinner, the undeserving, might receive full pardon, or full pardon, no judgment, when he gave full judgment, no pardon to the son, we as the sinner now receive full pardon, no judgment because of Christ. So God poured his wrath out upon his son. Again, Isaiah 53 clearly points to that when the prophecy of Christ, the Messiah, is given and how that the scripture says that it pleased the father to bruise him. He will make his soul an offering for sin. And so the fact of the matter is God poured out his wrath upon his son on our behalf that we now might receive that reconciliation, that all the hostility that existed between God and man is now eradicated in the person of Christ if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. And so he goes on to say, though, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, talking about Jew and Gentile alike, that all mankind, all tongues, all nations, the prophecy given in, Je in Genesis chapter 12, where God tells Abraham, and these shall all families of the earth be blessed. Then in Galatians, the scripture, Paul explains that in Galatians 3, and these shall all, God preached before, knowing he would justify the heathen, preached before the gospel unto Abraham and stated, and these shall all nations of the earth be blessed. 
And then he explains that blessing, that the blessing of God might come upon the Gentiles. What is that blessing? It is Christ. He is the promised seed, the scripture says. And so this fulfillment of the gospel is that all mankind, meaning nations, tongues, tribes, people, groups, Jew and Gentile, if you will, are now reconciled to God in the person of Christ as believers in Jesus Christ. So he says that to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world into himself, 2 Corinthians 5, 19, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us, I quoted this a moment ago, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So what he's saying is that God has created us new in Christ. We are now a new man. We are risen with Jesus, having been crucified with him. Now we are risen with him. And we have been reconciled to God, the Father, by his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's removed all that hostility. But then he says, he's the ministry of reconciliation. For those who are redeemed, if there's no hostility between God and us as believers, God has given us the ministry of of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? It's the ministry of the gospel. The only way that hostility will be removed between God and men is through the gospel. And then he goes on to say not only the ministry of reconciliation, but he also has given us the word of reconciliation. Well, what is the word of reconciliation? It's the gospel. So we are to both declare the gospel and we are to live the gospel. This is the exact expectation of this new man to live and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, to live and proclaim in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. These are the expectations of the genuine Christian life. And when I say say the word expectations, and in most connotations when we use that term, we use it to imply something we are hoping for or desiring, but that's not what the scriptures teach about this in terms of what we are speaking to. The scriptures teach here that these expectations are that which will be because of the new man. And so that's what's being implied and and, and given to us in this text. So within our text this morning, we find Paul's exhortation to live according to the resurrected life of Christ who lives within us. Verses 12 through 14. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, longsuffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, Even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Although all men are now a marred image of the Creator due to sin, as I previously mentioned, it is in Christ that God the Father has recreated us into His image, which results in us not only being reconciled to God, but also results in us being reconciled with our fellow man. Now, this is very important when we speak of reconciliation in relation to all Paul is dealing with in this text. Let's go back to verses 10 and 11 for uh, for just a moment to see how Paul leads us into what he is saying. He says, And have put on the new man, verse 10, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. There's that, again, reformation, being conformed to the image of Christ. Verse 11, Where in in Christ there is neither Greek nor Jew, There were only two people groups in all of the world throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Do you know who they were? Jews and Gentiles, and that's it. You were either Jewish or you were Gentile. That's all there was to it. And he says, neither Greek nor Jew, Gentile nor Jew, 
circumcision nor uncircumcision, specifically speaking now of Jews and Gentiles, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. So Greek and Jew, here's what he's saying, that the cultural differences of enmity and hatred are not in the new man. Then he says, So there is a difference, or there's in, in the sinful nature of man, there is division. And you go back to the Old Testament, and you consider, if you will, with me, the Tower of Babel. And you recall what happened? The reason God, the reason God dispersed them, people, I think, sometimes are confused about this. It wasn't because he was fearful that man was going to build a tower up to where he was. I know what the scriptures speak about, and it's saying, and it's using hyperbole, obviously here to explain that there was nothing beyond the imagination of man. He was wicked, obviously, and he was going to do as he would do, and he was just not going to be obedient. But what did God command Noah and his sons to do? He commanded them that they go and replenish the earth. They were to go out and replenish the earth. And what happened at the Tower of Babel? The problem was they're saying, hey, this is working pretty good for us. We're all collectively together, this community we have, and, and, we're, and we're strength, there's strength in numbers. We all are are together, so let's just stay here and let's just expand where we are. That was not the command of God. The command of God was that they go out and they replenish the earth, and that's not what they were doing. And so they were in disobedience to God. So what does God do? Well, then he confounds their languages. Remember, he gives them different languages so they no longer could communicate among themselves in the different groups of people, which then he disperses out as they kind of separated and parted their ways from those with whom they could no longer efficiently, effectively communicate. And so they all go their own ways. But what's so interesting about that is when you come to the New Testament, when God is, is birthing his church in the gospel or in the, in the book of Acts, and where the Lord is, is instituting his church. And if you recall with me, as Peter and the others are preaching on the day of Pentecost, and the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, of course, is not like the one and only day of Pentecost. No, this actually now was the fulfillment of all the Pentecost that were throughout the Old Testament, the weeks of ceremony and celebration. Now, this is really the fulfillment or fruition of that, in which what does the Lord do? Everything that sin had brought division into and problems and dispersion, he now allows them to hear in their own language, or and also he gives the gift to the apostles to be able to speak in languages, literal languages, that they had personally never learned that the gospel might be propagated. The point is, 
What sin divided, Christ brings back into unity, the Spirit of God. And so this old man is divisive. The old man, we have our own prejudices, we have our own, our own preferences, we have our own, our own likes, our own dislikes. And even in the old man, there's even a hatred that exists towards other people who are created in the image of God, though a marred image. But in Christ, what has happened? All that's been eradicated. There is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. Cultural differences, hatred and enmity, spiritual differences. No one has a, a, a higher plane with God, spiritually speaking, or advantage with God spiritually. There is barbarian Scythian, foreigners and, and barbaric foreigners. No, there's no difference. There's no social differences. The point is, in Christ, all of these distinctions and these divisions are eradicated. They're done away. So the renewed man in Christ knows nothing of such division and differences. In Christ, we are made complete, and Jesus Christ is all to all of those who are redeemed. While people will boast, think of this for a moment, they'll boast, this was commonplace, especially back years ago, and there's this tendency in all of us to take pride, even if you will, in where we come from, whether it be our country, the United States of America, or whether it be a, an area of our country, I'm kind of fond of the South. But whatever it may be, we will take pride and this is how it is. And this. Listen, in Christ, there's no distinction and no difference. It is Christ who is our identity. That's what Paul is saying. Christ is all in all of those who are believers in Christ, and he is all to those in whom he dwells. So it is Christ who is our identity. And so based on all of this, that there is no spiritual hierarchy, there is no division, there is no hatred, there is no social status. Christ is our identity, for we are dead, we are buried, and we are risen with him. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, let me digress for one moment. As a believer in Jesus Christ, I am not going to sit here and lie to you and tell you that I like everyone the same. I don't like everyone the same. I'll even go further and say there's people I don't like. But I can honestly, by the grace of God, tell you there is no one that I hate. And I can genuinely say that. And there is no one that lives that I do not desire to come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's no one I know of. No one. Now, that doesn't mean I like them. It doesn't mean I like the way they are. It doesn't mean I want to be friends with them. It doesn't mean I want to be around with them. Around them. But there's a difference in that and having a hatred or desiring for people to perish, for instance. And those who know Christ, there is no hatred. There is no enmity. All that's been done away. It's been eradicated if we are dead with him and risen with him. So let's look at what Paul says in our remaining time. I'm going to try to finish this as quickly as I can. As it's often been, as I said to you before, it may not be short, but it will be fast. So within our text this morning, we find Paul's exhortation to live according to the resurrected life of Christ who lives within us. So let's look at verses 12 through 14 again remembering verses 10 and 11. Because remember what Paul is saying. You put on that new man, you have put on that new man, and because you put on that new man, by the way, that new man, there's no division, there's no hatred, there's no hierarchy. Are you seeing what he's, what he's setting the stage up here saying? There's nothing that gives distinction between us as believers in Christ. We are one in Christ. So because of that, now verse 12, put on therefore... As the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy. Now notice, everyone who's a believer is elect of God, holy and beloved. And because of this, all the same in Christ, identity the same, 
Put on bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Now look at what he, 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 and then he, he again deals with this relationship between us, we who are believers in Christ. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another as believers. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you as believers, so also do ye. Above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Although all men are now a marred image of our creator due to sin, it is in Christ that God the Father has recreated us into his image, which results in us not only being reconciled to God, but also results in us being reconciled with our fellow man. Verses 10 and 11 again. Verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Again, Greek and Jew, cultural difference of enmity and hatred resolved. Circumcision, uncircumcision, spiritual difference and division resolved. Barbarian, Scythian, foreigners, rudest of all foreigners, all that's done away with. Bond nor free, societal differences and division, all resolved. The renewed man in Christ knows nothing of such division and difference. And in Christ we are made complete, and Jesus is all to those who are redeemed. So put on, therefore, upon this basis, that Christ has reconciled us to God the Father and to our fellow man, that we are to live accordingly. We are to be intentional that we do not allow the old man and the ways of the old man to rise within our lives. In other words, if we are risen with Christ, then we are to live in the power of this resurrection. He goes on to say, verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Within this statement, Paul reminds us of the importance of being intentional to live according to God's grace, which we have received. Notice what he says here. The noun elect means chosen. And Paul elaborated, elaborated on this in his introductory statements of his epistle to Titus and the church at Ephesus. In Titus 1.1, Paul said, Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. Now notice that. He, he couples these together. The faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. If you truly are redeemed, then you desire godliness. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So the noun elect means chosen. And what he's saying is if you have been chosen, if you are redeemed, then you are chosen of God. If you've been chosen of God, then you should act accordingly, recognizing in humility that there is nothing you have done to deserve such grace. So how can there be room for pride and arrogance in the life of the believer when we are mindful that we don't deserve the grace of God? We don't deserve this gift of redemption. We do not deserve the Lord Jesus Christ. And not one of us deserve Christ any more so than the other. See, there's no division here. There's no advantage with God because of, well, I never did those things. That's irrelevant. None of that matters. If you are in Christ, your identity is in the resurrected life of Christ. So live that way. It's often been said, people make statements such as this, well, you know, one of the most important things for you to do is forgive yourself. Show me one place in Scripture where we're commanded to forgive ourselves. The greatest thing is that we are forgiven of God in Christ. That's what's needed. Not forgiveness of ourselves. We need, and by the way, you want to live victoriously? Live in the truth of the forgiveness of God in Christ. Regardless of where I've been, regardless of what I've done, regardless of how I've acted, you know what, I'm forgiven. And I'm not saying that haphazardly or 
casually. I'm saying that gives me an ability to live in victory that I could never achieve myself because I've been forgiven in Christ. The noun holy means holy one, one who's been separated, not only from sin, but separated unto God. And the noun beloved means love or to be loved. Paul reminds the Colossian believers that they have been chosen by God, set apart by God, and loved by God. And Paul's exhortation that these believers live in the resurrected power of Christ is based on the truth and wonder of this grace of God that's been given on their behalf. It is important, again, that we recognize that we are called to live in the resurrected power and life of Christ, but the Lord is the one who has chosen us, who has set us apart to himself and loves us. Paul urges the Colossian believers here to live their lives according to the grace and love of God as provided in Jesus Christ. Verse 12, he goes on to say, Mouths of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. Within the remaining portion of this text and even this chapter, Paul explains what this new man looks like and how the presence of this new man, the risen man with Christ, in which all division and enmity has been removed, will be manifested among other believers. In other words, the the list of the marks of the new man which Paul provides in this text all regard the interactions that exist between followers of Jesus Christ. So notice what he says here. Put on bowels of mercies. This deals with inward compassion or a heart of compassion. Put on kindness, goodness. Humbleness of mind, humility. Meekness, gentleness. Long-suffering, patience, and forbearance. Forbearing one another, enduring one another. That's interesting, isn't it? You know, we love one another as believers in Christ, but there are times we have to endure one another. If you're married, you understand this. Surely you do, right? If you have children, you understand this. You have to endure sometimes. And it's not you don't love, but you have to endure. And we are to have that among our, amongst ourselves as believers in Christ. Forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Oh, wow. What, what, a, what a command. Right? Well, how can I forgive someone as Jesus forgave me? Here's what it means. I have to forgive freely. I have to forgive freely. There cannot be, there cannot be conditions upon my granting of forgiveness. Now, that, this, this is often misunderstood. I, don't wanna, I do not want to digress here. I do not want to get bogged down, but let me just say this. Forgiveness does not mean, at a human level, obviously, that someone says, oh, will you forgive me? And you say, yes. First of all, let me say this to you. No one has to ask you to forgive them for you to forgive them. And forgiveness, God has enabled us this ability to forgive and if you will, the power to forgive by the working of his spirit in us, where someone can do wrong against us and never even acknowledge it, but that does not mean we are not capable of forgiving them. There may never be reconciliation. There may never be restoration, but guess what? We can still freely forgive all the same. Boy, that's liberty, isn't it? That's liberty in Christ to be able to do that. And so he says, forgive as Christ forgave you. And then he says charity, put on charity, love, or agape is the term here. Paul explains that charity, this agape love, as we would call it, is the same as God's love is defined in 1 Corinthians 13, which you know the, defini- or the definition of charity in 1 Corinthians 13, and we do not have time to do this, but it's very interesting. Charity is not something we do. If you look at what Paul says in the text, 
two or three times in the first verses of chapter 13, Paul says, if you have charity, it's possessing this. It's not something we are doing, it's something we possess. And what is the greatest possession we have? It's Christ himself. What is the greatest demonstration, the ultimate demonstration of agape, of love, God's love, the Lord Jesus Christ? And by the way, your love doesn't measure up to 1 Corinthians 13's definition of love. It doesn't. But God's love does. And so we are to acknowledge that and therefore allow his love to be demonstrated through us. Again, living out that resurrected life. So Paul says that charity, this agape love, is the bond or the sinew. It's the fetter or the unity of maturity as believers in Christ. Bear with me. We'll be done in just a moment. Well, let me back up or rephrase. I'm going to finish in just a moment. God has bound us to himself by his love for us in Christ. Is that not true? Put on this charity. Put on this love. Well, God has bound us to himself. He's reconciled us by Christ. He's bound us to himself by Christ in this love. Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul says, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is in Christ. If you are not in Christ, you are not in God's love. If you do not know Christ, you know nothing of God's love. But in Christ is God's love. This is God's love demonstrated to us. And nothing, notice what Paul is saying. He's saying there is nothing past, there is nothing present, there is nothing future. There is nothing in heaven, there is nothing in hell. There is nothing in the world. There is no power that exists that can divide us from God's love in Christ. What a love. But God has not only bound us to himself by, love, by his love in Christ, but God has also bound us to one another by his love for us in Christ. In 1 John 4, 7-11, in this great book of the test of true believers in Christ, John says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Did you hear what he just said? Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, Conjunction here, for God is love. That is not an an absolute, all-inclusive definition of God's being in person. When it says, for God is love. He is saying, he's using, let me me share this with you because this is important. Because people will take those three words, God is love, as though this is the biblical definition of who God is. That is not the context of this at all. John is saying, those who know God, love, and how can we not love when God himself is love to us? Let me explain that further. To the unbeliever, guess what God is not? Love. Because where is God's love? In Christ. And if a man is not in Christ, then he's not in God's love. God is, and again, uh, 1 John 4 deals with this, and Romans also deals with this, where the scripture says that God has demonstrated his love toward us. God commendeth his love toward us, demonstrated his love in that while we were at sinners, Christ died for us. Yes, the love of God is demonstrated to the entire world, but the entire world is not basking in the love of God. And then he also says in 1 John 4, in this was manifested the love of God in that he sent his son. So God manifested his love to all mankind in the person of Christ. But again, let me, let me summarize like this because this is very important in evangelization. Don't ever go out and tell people, God loves you, God loves you, God loves you. What you should be saying to them is, 
God has manifested his love and demonstrated his love in the person of his son. But to reject Christ is to reject the love of God. God has made this provision, but you've rejected Christ. You've rejected his love. And guess what? All men have rejected Christ. And so apart from receiving Christ, you know nothing of God's love. And so he says here that God is love, talking about to the believer, he is love to us. To the unbeliever, God is wrath. But to the believer, he is love. So how can we not love if we're truly believers? That's the point John is making. He goes on to say, in this was manifested, here's the verse, the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we not live through him. Here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, that atoning victim for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also also are ought also to love one another. Jesus told his disciples in the Gospel of John, if you recall, by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, that ye have love one toward or one for another. So how is it that we are marked as disciples of Christ? There is a love, genuine love, agape love, a godly love that we have for others that we did not possess prior to our redemption, prior to God's love being received into our hearts and our lives. Paul's explanation of how the new man has no division and enmity is the basis for the command for us to put on all that pertains to the new man that we not allow any division to exist. When God has removed that division and reconciled us to himself and one to another in Christ. That's why he gives the example, no circumcision, uncircumcision, no bond, no free, no Greek, no Jew. He's saying that because in Christ, all of that has been eradicated. Let us live accordingly with one another. When that old man wants to resurrect within us, we are to recognize I am crucified and remember this. I deserve no more so the grace of God than does my fellow believer in Christ. I deserve no more the mercy of God than does a fellow believer in Christ. Are you understanding this? The reason that we would act differently is because of the nature of the old man that is constantly present that would exalt ourselves above others as though they are not as deserving as are we. We are responsible to continue in the unity provided by God in Jesus Christ through His Spirit. As Paul explained to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 4, 1-6, through 6, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. Here he is calling out that practical living out the truth of the position in chapters 1-3 through 3 of Ephesians. With all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love. Endeavoring, notice what he says in verse 3, endeavoring. To keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who's above all and through all and in you all, all those who are believers. So how could we act any differently? How could we think it's appropriate, acceptable, or common practice for a born-again, professing born-again believer in Jesus Christ Go put on the filthy garments of the flesh and live in them as though that's normal. No, put off. Remember, you're dead, you're crucified. Live in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. And that not only, see, here's the reality of it, not only affects you with the Lord in this relationship here, but if you have a proper relationship and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then that affects all the relationships you have Otherwise, Ephesians 6 tells us this, 5 and 6, 
And also, these verses and those that follow in Colossians 3 tell us the same thing. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity.